man. Um, uh, this year, as has been declared as our, our God year, I'm going to spend some extended time teaching us about the person of God. Hallelujah. Um, and as you all know, uh, the key text for us as a church for this year is Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it is fit, it's just fitting that um, uh, as we enter into the first Sunday of the year, I spend time um, speaking on the subject. This morning, I am speaking on a message I've titled, The God Who Is. The God Who Is. Amen. Um, uh, our key text will be from Genesis chapter 1, and I'll read the first five verses. Genesis chapter 1, from verse 1 to 5. Let's just quickly say a word of prayer. Father, I pray that you grant me utterance. I pray that you give us revelation, knowledge, and understanding. The entrance of thy word bringeth light and giveth understanding to the simple. Father, this morning I pray, O oh God, that you will illuminate our hearts, cause us to know you, open our eyes to see you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So evening and the morning were the first day. Amen. One of the things, personally, that grabs my attention and sometimes gets me worked up, is what I call bad ideas. Somebody say bad ideas. The, especially ideas that find themselves into the place of public discourse. I don't know whether maybe it is my makeup or it is by virtue of my calling, but I find that those things really, really disturb me. Um, and the reason why it disturbs me at the level it disturbs me at is because I've come to realize that people die, but ideas don't, right? You can propound a bad idea and leave the face of the earth and go. But the repercussions of that idea will live forever. And that is why sometimes I am very, very um, uh, vociferous when it comes to defending and, and speaking against bad ideas. Because it can ruin somebody's life further years down the line. Uh, we, we, when we look at people like Hitler, um, uh, Chairman Mao, um, uh, Mussolini, all these people that have committed great atrocities during their lifetime, and we look at the fact that these people were wicked. What we do not realize is that these people based their life on ideas, philosophies that were propounded by people other than them. So they held on to someone else's idea, and they lived out that idea. For instance, in the um, uh, 18th century, there was a, a German, uh, Austrian-German philosopher by name Friedrich Nietzsche. I don't know if any of you have heard of Friedrich Nietzsche. Friedrich Nietzsche is the one who propounded and came up with the theory that God is dead. But when he came up with the theory, he came up with the conclusion. He says that if truly God is dead and we have killed God, then the 20th century is going to be the bloodiest century in the whole of human history. And not, to be, not that he was a prophet of doom, if God is truly taken out of the equation, what he predicted would happen, happen. And the 20th century, in the 20th century, the cumulative amount of wars that were fought and the amount of people that died is more than the people that have died in all the other wars in human history combined. 
So that was the, the replication of a bad idea. Somebody say a bad idea. And for instance, if you trace the, the pro- projection and the progression of Western thought and Western philosophy, by the uh, 14th to the 16th century, Europe entered what was known as the Renaissance. And during the Renaissance period, uh, all kinds of philosophers came up. One of my favorite philosophers at the time is uh, a man by name René Descartes. René Descartes is known as the father of modern philosophy. He is the father of modern rational thought. Right? René Descartes came, w- wanted to bring up a, a, a new epistemological tool. By that, I mean he wanted to come up with a new way of arriving at knowledge. Right? So he came up with the conclusion that we must do away with all that has been. Right? So he, he, he gave a parable in the sense that we, shall, we, we must think of knowledge like a basket full of apples. We must take away all the bad apples, everything, and begin to fill it from the word go. And he came to the axiomatic principle, the foundational principle that the one thing that I cannot do is doubt that I am thinking. And once I, I am thinking, even though I doubt that I am thinking, once I am doubting, I am still thinking. So de- before, because I think, therefore I am. So he came up with his, his um, uh, um, axiom. I think, therefore I am cognito ego sum in the Latin. Right? And, and that became the foundation for other philosophers coming along the line. But even though René Descartes meant well, the logical conclusion of his philosophy meant that they were doing away with absolute realities that had been held on for a long time. So we moved from the rational period to the modern world and from the modern world to a postmodern world. And so now today we live in a world where there is no absolute truth. And you would hear statements like, my truth. So somebody would say, that is my truth. That is her truth. Let her live out her truth. Let him live out his truth. Because there is no such thing as truth. But the statement, there is no such thing as truth, is also a true statement. So why should we believe you? Are we together? I'm, I'm going somewhere with this. And you would notice that we live in a world today that you see a man. Everything about him tells you he's a man. But because he has decided to take on another identity, we are supposed to acquiesce to that person and assume and believe that that identity he is imposing on us is true because he has said so. That is the consequence of bad ideas that started in the 15th century. So ideas have consequences. So even if in the public space and in the realm of public thought, ideas have consequences, how much more bad ideas about God? When Jesus walked to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, Jesus told the woman that you do not know what you worship, for we know what we worship. That means Jesus is saying that there is a possibility where you can engage in religious exercise. You can come to church every Sunday. You can come be lifting up your hands, praying, doing all kinds of things, but you do not know the God you are dealing with. And if you have bad ideas about God, how you live out your Christian experience is going to show. So we have some people who think that God is a genie in a lamp. And all I need to do is do certain things, pray, fast, 
and it's like rubbing the lamp, and God comes, and God is supposed to grant me my three wishes. And if God does not grant me my three wishes, I want nothing to do with God. I prayed last year. God did not answer my prayer. Therefore, God is not there. Because we have assumed and believed bad ideas about God. Hallelujah. But when you read the text that we just read, the Bible opens and teaches us certain things about God. And I'm going to focus on three of the things that we just see in the book of Genesis chapter 1 and the implications of those ideas. In Genesis chapter 1, God's name Elohim is mentioned 35 times in Genesis chapter 1 alone. That should tell us that the book is about God. Because if you pick a book, the first few pages of a book should tell you what, where you are going on this journey in the book. Sometimes we pick the Bible and we think the Bible is a way that God is going to show us so that we can become rich, so that we can become wealthy, so that we can achieve our dreams. But the book that we call the Bible is first and foremost about God. And because it is about God, it can be about you. Because you are made in the image of God. Are we together? It tells us that God is the subject of the book. And there are three truths that I want us to look at. The first is that God is. Somebody say God is. See, the Bible does not open with an origin story about God. I remember one time I went to, uh, with um, my campus ministry at the time, we went for evangelism at an orphanage. And uh, there was a little boy at the orphanage that asked me a question. And it was a very innocent question. The question was, where did God come from? Or, or when God was creating the heavens and the earth, where was he standing? Right? And, and I can just imagine the imagination of a young boy trying to picture these things. But the Bible does not open with a God who needs an origin story. Because he is the God who is. He has no beginning. He has no end. At the very beginning of time, he is the one who has always been there. Are we together? When you follow the, the religions of the day, when Moses was putting Genesis together and was writing for the nation of Israel, all the gods of the other nations had origin stories. If you follow the, the gods of Egypt, where these people went into slavery, the gods had origin stories. There was the god Atum, who through various uh, um, uh, spawnings and respawnings of himself, uh, gave birth to the old gods. And the old gods, uh, by, uh, uh, by copulation, gave birth to the new gods. And those God, out of those gods, we have a, a god like um, a Ra, the sun god. We have a god like Osiris. All of these gods uh, are, have emerged because they have origin stories. If you look at the Greek pantheon of gods, Hercules, or Hercules is a demigod. But you read about Zeus, Hades, Hera. All of these people have origin stories. But then we come to the Bible and we are, we are met with a god who does not have an origin. He is the God who is. He is ultimate reality. He is what we call the unmoved mover. He moves things. He himself is moved by no one. He is the uncaused cause. He causes things to be, yet he himself is caused by nothing. Before everything ever existed, he was. 
God is not just another being. You know, sometimes when we say, we talk about God, we speak about God in a sense that God is a supreme being. And sometimes when you use those terms, you are tempted in your mind to compare God with other beings. But God is not another being. He is being himself. The Bible says, in him we live. In him we move. And in him we have our being. He is the ground of all being. Without God, nothing exists. So when, when we, we, we begin to think about conceptualizing God and people are asking the God of the Christians, where did he come from? I said that the, if you are thinking about a God who has an origin, then you are not speaking about the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible does not have an origin. At the very beginning, before time was, God was. In the beginning, God. Are we together? Psalm 90 verse 1 and 2. The Bible says, Lord... You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. From ages past, he is God. For the years to come, he will still be God. There will never come a time where our God will not be God. You see, you can't vote God into power. And you can't vote him out of power. You can't conspire to do a coup d'etat against God. The devil tried it and received the shock of his life. Are we together? In 2023, he was God. In 2024, he will be God. Can I prophesy further? In 2025, our God will still be God. He remains God. There is a philosophical concept that was... Um, developed by, I thought this year I'll be teaching you a lot, right? So I hope you come to church with your notebooks. And this philosophical concept was first developed by Aristotle, father of uh, what they call philosophy, right? During the um, uh, pre-Socratic period. So Aristotle came up with this pre uh, theory, and he came up with this theory when he was trying to make sense of the universe. Because he, when he looked at the order and the structure of the universe, he could not but help to think that this number of gods that we are serving, they cannot be responsible for the, the order that we see. There is supposed to be an overall mind that is in charge of everything that is. So in, in forming a language to be able to describe what he was thinking about, he came up with the theory of what is known as the concept of actuality versus potentiality. Actuality versus potentiality. So let's look at some definition of them. When we say potentiality, potentiality refers to the capacity or the possibility of something to become actual. While actuality refers to the state of being fully realized or manifested. Let me bring it home. So if you take a lump of clay and you look at a sculpture, right? The lump of clay is a potentiality. That means it has the potential to become a sculpture. Right? But when you look at the sculpture, it is a final manifested piece of art. So in that state, it is an actuality. Are we together? And, and when centuries down the line, there came a, a Catholic uh, priest called um, a priest and scholar, St. Thomas Aquinas. And he came up with degrees of actuality. Right? And he says, God is the ultimate actuality. In the sense that in God, there is no potentiality. God has no potential of change. There will never come a time where God will have to get better. 
Are we together? Because if God gets better, that means there was a time where God's wisdom was not intact. That means, you see, if you serve a God who can change his mind, let me, let me, there was one time my network, I think I had used all my data, my network was spotty. And I was driving using Google, uh, Apple Maps. And I really didn't know where I was going, so I had to depend on the maps. And after a while, after it gets, it will give me a direction, but because of the network, it will say, sorry, I have to start again. And, and imagine following a God like that, whose knowledge becomes limited, because even though the map is leading me, the map is depending on knowledge from a certain server. So once connection to the server is broken, it has to reconnect to get new knowledge. But our God is a God who has no potentiality in him. He doesn't have room for change. He is forever God. So if he is wise, he is wisdom in its perfection. If he is love, he is love in its perfection. Hallelujah. He doesn't get better with time. He doesn't get worse with time. When you buy your iPhone, in three, four years, you have to get a new one. Because with time, it doesn't get better. In actual fact, with time, it gets worse. But our God is such that with time, you can't go and look at God and say, God was better two years ago. And he is better now. He is who he is. Hallelujah. He is the unchanging one. In Malachi chapter 3, in Malachi chapter 3, he says, For I am the Lord, Malachi chapter 3 verse 6, I am the Lord your God. I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. You know, God was speaking through the prophet Malachi to the children of Israel. They had committed sins and they were living anyhow. But because God had not punished them, they felt that God had changed. In the sense that God, who was the God of justice, is no longer executing justice upon them. But God is reminding them that I am the Lord your God. I do not change. That is why you are not consumed. You are not consumed because I am the God who made the covenant to Abraham. I am the God who made the covenant to Jacob. And because of my covenant to them, I have to preserve some of you to establish my covenant. So it is because I do not change, that is why you are not consumed. We serve a God who does not change. During the, during the course of the year, I'll take my time to teach on some of the concepts, the bad concepts that we have. You know, one of the bad concepts that some people say is that uh, the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New. It is an error. It was a heresy that was rejected early on. In, by AD 350, it had been rejected. Marcion and his people came and they rejected that heresy. I'm going to spend time teaching you on the father and his household. Why it looks as though there is a difference in treatment. But the God himself has not changed. Are we together? The second thing we see from Genesis chapter 1 is that not only is that God is, he is the God who creates everything. The Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. As creator, God stands distinct from all creation. There is nothing in the created order that can stand in competition or in comparison to God. This is why we say God is holy. When we use the term holy, it is not that, you know, sometimes we think, when we think holiness, we think without sin. But when we say God is holy, what we are trying to establish by the term holy is that God is different. When God stands, he stands as creator. Everything else stands as creation. 
So nothing can compete with God. Nothing can compare with God. You see, sometimes when we are praying and we are facing attacks from the enemy, one of the things you must remember, lock it in your mind from today, the devil is not God's enemy. The devil is your enemy. But he is not God's enemy. He cannot compete with God. When he raised rebellion in heaven, God did not, was not worried one bit. God did not get up from his seat in heaven. God just said, hey, Michael, go and deal with this guy. And it was done. The devil is not God's classmate. Are we together? There is no being, you see, that can compete with God. I've told you this several times. When the nation of Israel went to follow the, uh, the God named Baal, Baal was the God of rain and thunder. He was a storm God. And when they went to follow him, God says, you people have left me to go and follow one of the beings that I made. I'll show you who's truly in power. So God shut the heavens and there was no rain. Because if you've left me to go and follow the rain God, let the rain God tell you where he gets his rain from. So he shut the heavens and there was no rain. There is nothing that can compete with God. Are we together? Everything that exists has its source from God. That's why we mean when we say God is creator. In John chapter 1 from verse 1 to 3, the Bible says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. What are some of the implications of God being our creator? Number one, because God is our creator and he's our maker, he is worthy of our worship. We don't worship God because he gave you a car. We don't worship God because he gave you a new house. You don't even worship God because you prayed and he answered. All of those things are bonuses, reasons and extra motivations. But just the fact that you are alive today, you have breath in your nostrils, is reason to worship the Lord because he is our maker. In Psalm 95, from verse 3 to 7, it says, for the Lord is great. You know, sometimes when you read the Lord like this, it says, for Yahweh, for Jehovah, is the great God, and the great king above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his. He made it. And in his, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. We worship him because he's our maker. We worship him because he's our God. Because today, if God comes and he says, everything should disappear, everything will disappear. He is our maker. And we go to him, we worship him, so even if God has not done anything for you, so sometimes people are like, hey, what has God done for me that I should worship him? You are alive. The fact that you exist today is reason enough to worship him. Hallelujah. The second implication of God being our maker is that because he is our maker, he is the one who determines our purpose. We are not, you see, the world has told us that we are self-determining. That we do what we like. We are our own judges. No. If God is the creator of the heavens and the earth, you do not determine what you like. You cannot determine for yourself good and evil. You know, 
when God told Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? The, the, the implication of that instruction was that I have made you in my image and my likeness. I have given you authority over everything that I have made. But there is one thing that you are not allowed to do. You do not define for yourself what is good and what is evil. I am the one who does that. So if we, if God is truly our maker and God created everything, he is the one who determines what we do with our lives. That is why the number one preoccupation for your life is that you go to God and find out, God, why did you bring me here? The bulk of your prayer should not be, Lord, give me money. Lord, let my dreams come true. The bulk of your prayer is, God, what is my purpose? Why did you bring me here? That should be the bulk of your prayer. Finding out where God is leading you. What God is saying you should do. Are we together? I know these are not some of the messages you like to hear, but it's true. <coughs> we are made as God's images. That means your life at the end of the day, when people look at your life, they should look at your life and say there is truly a God. And they should be able to see some of the characteristic traits of God at work in your life. When we see your life, are we truly seeing a God who is love? Are we truly seeing a God who is merciful? Are we truly seeing a God who is orderly? Are we together? And when we continue to look at creation, there are a number of things we can learn about the God who made the heavens and the earth. The first thing we, the, we learn about him. So we've looked at the two implications. That if God is our maker, then he deserves our worship. Number two, if God is our maker, then he determines our purpose. But when we look at how God created, what can we learn about God from his creation? Number one is that he's a God of order. God is a God of order. The scripture says that when God began the creation exercise, in the beginning, Barbara Sheet Elohim, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness covered the face of the deep. So the, the raw state, at the beginning when God was, was doing his creation exercise, the raw state was that the earth was, number one, without form and void. The, the Hebrew expression is tohu vabohu. And it means to be a place that cannot be inhabited. To be a place that cannot be inhabited. Some other translations say the earth was wild and waste. He says, and darkness covered the face of the deep. So God is looking at the, 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 the earth. He has something in mind he wants to bring out of the earth. The raw state of the earth is, number one, it is covered in darkness. And it is without form and void. So what's the first thing that God does? He deals with the problem of darkness. Let there be light. And there was light. Then, after he deals with the problem of light, he says, okay, the waters have covered the face of the deep. He separates the waters. He sends some above and he sends some below. Then he looks at the waters and he commands land to emerge from the waters. And the, water, and the land emerges from the waters. If you study the creation story, there is actually a beautiful symmetry in creation. Day one, God creates light. Day two, he creates the expanse, waters above, waters below. Day three, he calls for the land to emerge. Day four matches with day one. So in day four, he creates the sun, the moon, and the stars to fill up the lights. Because the first light that God said, let there be, was light that emerged from God himself. 
Are we together? But now God needs to fill it with other lights. So he creates the sun. He creates the moon. He creates the stars. In day five, God has created the expanse, the waters above, the waters below. So he fills the waters above with flying creatures, birds. And he fills the waters below with fish. In day, day six, he, he, in day three, he calls the dry land to emerge. So day six, he fills the land with all manner of living creatures. It tells you that God is orderly. And one principle we see is that God always creates the environment before he creates the thing to live in that environment. So if God is working with you and God is holding your hand, do not worry. He has a plan for you and he will execute it. God will not make a bed and say, this bed, where should I put it? He will not make fish and be wondering, what do I do with this creature? Before the fish came, the sea was ready. Before the bed came, the sky was ready. Before man came, the land was ready. God is a God of order. The next thing we see about God in his creation is that God is intrinsically good. After every creative act of God, there is a refrain. You know, one of the things that we do not see because we read our Bibles in English is that Genesis chapter 1 is actually written in Hebrew poetic language. So it is actually poetry. Right? That is why sometimes it is, you read it and it's difficult to understand. Is the serpent really a serpent? Is the waters really waters? Because it is poetic language. You know when you read a poem and you, you have not been taught how to interpret the poem and read the poem well, it becomes confusing, Right? And that's how Genesis chapter 1 is. But we see a refrain at the end of every creative act of God. And God saw and God said that it was good. And God saw and God said that it was good. After his final act of creation on the sixth day, in Genesis chapter 1 verse 31, we read the final refrain. And God saw everything that he had made. And indeed, it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. God does good, not because somebody is watching him. God does good, not because somebody will punish him if he does not do good. God does good, not because we will worship him because he is doing us good. He does good because he himself is good. Whatever God does is good. So what this means is that if your life is in God's hands and God is working on your case, you have every reason to be rest assured because the end will be good. If it isn't good, don't worry. All it means is that God is not done. Are we together? Because when you read a creation story, in day one, when God created the light, let there be light, he said it was good. But in day two, Day two is the only day of the creation story where God did not say it was good. But you see, it didn't really matter because it was still a work in progress. By the time God gets to day six, he looks at everything his hands have made and he says everything is good. Are we together? Once we are working with God, it will be good. Your life may be a life that is without form and void today. You see, when creation started, it was without form and void. It was, it was formless. It was empty. It was darkness. And you're wondering, how can I move from darkness to good? 
Just place your life in the hands of God. In our God here, surrender totally to the God who is there and he will make your end good. The final point we see from our text is that God speaks. So he is the God who is. He is the God who creates and he is the God who speaks. God is not a silent God. And because he speaks, we can know him. Hallelujah. You see, God is the self-existent one. He is pure actuality and he is infinite. These categories of God means that if God does not disclose himself, no one can know him. Because before you were born, he was God. You will die and go. He will still be God. So there are parts about God that unless God reveals, no one can know. If you read the book of Job, if you read the book of Job and you go through the story of Job, everybody came and they were postulating, saying all kinds of things. It is because God has done this. It is because you have done this. That is why God is doing this. And Job says, me too, I am innocent. I have not done anything. I know God. And God comes down to Job. And you know the first question that God asked Job? He says, who is he that darkens my counsels with words without knowledge? That means, why are you saying things about me you do not know? If God does not reveal himself, there is no way you and I can know him. And that is why it is good news for us that we have a God who speaks. Because God must first initiate what we call his self-disclosure. He must be the one who makes himself known to us. And we have to thank God that God speaks. How has God spoken? Number one, God has spoken in nature. God has spoken in nature. In Romans chapter 1 verse 20. Romans 1 verse 20. The Bible says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. This is why God holds every human being responsible. Because he has put enough information in the created order for you to know that he is real. And, and what does creation teach us about God? The Bible says it teaches even his eternal power and Godhead. That means creation, if you look at creation, two things you know about God. That God is and that God is powerful. That's what creation teaches us. So there is no one in the final analysis that can stand in the presence of God and say that, God, I did not have enough evidence that you were real. No one. That's what the Bible teaches us. It says there's no one. That is why it says, so that they are without excuse. There's no one. That is why in every culture, in every nation, they always have a concept of some being outside of them. Because when you look at creation, you will see his eternal power and you will see his Godhead. Psalm 19 verse 1 to 3. Psalm 19 from verse 1 to 3. He says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech 
or language where their voice is not heard. So when we look at the heavens and we look at the handiwork of God, everywhere they are speaking and testifying of God. He says there is no place where their voice is not heard. It doesn't matter the language you speak. Every one of us speaks the language of creation. Are we together? So number one, God speaks, and we say God speaks through creation. The next way we know that God speaks is that God has spoken through his representatives. We call them the prophets and the apostles. God has chosen men in time, and he has spoken through them. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. Point is this. He says, God at various times and in various ways in times past spoke unto the fathers by the prophets. So God not only speaks in creation. You see, creation cannot reveal much about God. All creation tells us is that God is and that he's powerful. But to know whether God is merciful, to know whether God is kind, to know whether God is loving, you cannot necessarily infer from creation. So what God does is that he picks representatives and he speaks to us through them. And he speaks in various ways and in various means through them. But the final revelation of God, he says, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, who is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the final speech of God. That is why when he came, you see? Oh, yes, Lord. That is why when Jesus came, his description is the word. He is the final speech of God. He is God's final statement. God's final revelation of who he is. When God saw that humanity had fallen into sin, into a formless and void state, into a dark abyss of sin, and we're going to die in our sin, just like God spoke at creation, and his words turned everything around, God says, I know the one agent that can solve everything. So the Bible says, and the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the father. Full of grace and truth. For no one has at any point in time seen the father. But the son who was with him has revealed him to us. Jesus is the final revelation, the final self-disclosure. That is why if you want to know God, just go to the New Testament and study Jesus. If you want to know how God deals with sinners, look at how Jesus dealt with sinners. He doesn't send them away. They caught the woman caught in adultery, brought her to Jesus Christ, ready to stone her. He goes down and he begins to write in the sun. Then he says, he who is without sin should cast the first stone. And all the accusers left. And Jesus said, woman, where are your accusers? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You see, we have a certain idea of God. That God is the one who condemns. But God does not condemn sinners. In fact, he's the one who justifies sinners. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. If you want to know Jesus' Jesus's method of rec recruiting, 
Jesus' method of selecting people and bringing people around him. Jesus is not concerned about who is rich. You know, in modern Christianity, sometimes you look at the things that we do and it's funny. And we want all the rich people close to us. We want all the wealthy people near us. Then we give them all the titles. We give them the front seats in our church and all of those things. The Bible says that he was a friend of sinners. Prostitutes and tax collectors came and ate with him. The religious guys of the day looked at Jesus. And they're like, what is this guy doing? But what did they not know? That the man who was walking the streets of Galilee, the man who was walking the streets of Jerusalem, that was God in the flesh. That is God telling us that, you see, the things that you people esteem, I do not esteem. That's why the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians, he says, for you see your calling, that's not many wise, not many noble, not many, not many strong in the flesh. But God has chosen the weak things of the world. He has chosen the foolish things of the world to confide the wise. That is the God that we serve. He speaks. Somebody say, my God speaks. Two things about God's speech. The first thing we see is that God's words carry power. God's words carry power. In Genesis 1 alone, the phrase, and God said, occurs 10 times. In Genesis chapter 1, and God said, the phrase occurs 10 times. Eight times of those 10, those eight words are creative power, words of power. When God said, let there be light, light appeared. God said, let there be an expanse, the expanse came. God said, let the land appear. We don't know where the land came from. The, the song that I love so much, so will I. It says, God of creation, there are the stars before the beginning of time. My favorite line in that song says, with no point of reference, you look to the dark and you fleshed out the wonder of light. That is the God that we serve. His words carry creative power. So when God looks at your life today, and God says, I will make you, don't look at the raw materials that you have available to yourself. Because when God says, I will make you, he's not looking at you. He's looking at himself. He's looking at his resources. And there is nothing that God cannot do. God said, and there was. God said, and there was. God said, and there was. So this year, the most important thing you need to do is gauge your ear to the mouth of God. What has God said? What is God saying? You see, so I thought God speaks ten times in Genesis. Eight times it is creative. One time it is pronouncing blessing. And the final time it is giving instruction. Three principles here. When God speaks, he speaks to create. When God speaks, he speaks to bless. When God speaks, he speaks to instruct. We see all of this right there in Genesis chapter 1. That is why it is important to be close to God this year. Because when God speaks, a blessing might be on the way. When God speaks, an instruction is on the way to preserve you. Are we together? When God spoke, ten times God spoke, the earth that was without form and void, all, it, all the earth needed to do was to hear the voice of God ten times. All your life needs is the word of God. Your life may be without form and void. God is not concerned about that because he is the one who sees the end from the beginning. When God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was without form and void, there was, there was nobody with the, with the um, plan of the world, but God had it with him. 
You know, this morning I was actually listening to a lecture by a, a, a scientist, and he's, he was talking about how he came from being an atheist to become a Christian. And he says, he doesn't understand why the world is so mathematically accurate. That the world follows, the earth follows the laws of mathematics as though there was somebody who wrote the formulas in place. The second thing he says, he says, there, you know, there are 15 f- physical constants that the world obeys. 15 constants. You know, if you did physics, for example, the, the gravitational constant, right? If the gravitational constant is increased by one, the, 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 the explosion that formed the earth, when God said, let there be light, that explosion, the world cannot expand at that rate to create the world that it is today. Because if the gravitational pull is too strong, it cannot expand it to collapse. There will be an explosion and an immediate collapse. If, if he, it was too low, it will not also be able to fully expand at the rate that it keeps expanding at. And he looks at these physical constants. And you see, you can't tweak them a little higher and a little lower. They must be what they are or else the world will not work. And the only conclusion is that somebody put this thing in motion. Somebody engineered this thing and caused it to work. So when God looks at your life, you see, Maybe look at Joseph. Joseph was in prison. But God has shown Joseph a dream. Because God is the one who has the final template. You know, whenever you are building a house or you are putting a structure together, before the house is finished, there is one person who has seen the house already. The architect. He has seen it in his mind. He has seen it in his, in his heart. Because he's the one who puts everything together. You see, but even with us human beings, Sometimes because of the constraints of the soil and the constraints of the land and constraints of time and constraints of resources, we change the design at the end of the day. But when God starts, the design is the design. When God starts a thing, I said the design is the design. So there will not come a time where God has run out of resources. So he says, even though I promised you this, let's settle for this. No. So when the earth was without form and void, God looked at it. And when you're observing Genesis 1, it's so beautiful. Sometimes I try to immerse myself in a story and you are just, God said, let there be light. They're like, what is going to come next? Because out of these chaotic waters, just like, then God says, he's separating the waters above from the waters below. It's like, hey, what is this, what is this being doing? He says, let the dry land emerge. Okay, okay, the waters have emerged. What is happening? Then he begins to fill the, the skies with, with the sun, the moon, the stars. And, and it's beginning to look beautiful. He's beginning to cause separation. Now the whole place that was darkness, now it's like there's a cycle. There is day, there is night. There is day, there is night. It's beginning to, to take shape. He looks at the waters. He looks at the sky. The birds are flying. The fish are in the sea. Like, wow. Wow. Then he, he creates all the living creatures that live on the face of the earth. And finally, in his best act of all, he says, let us make man in our own image and our own likeness. You see, scientists say that when they look at how the world has been put together, it is as though the world was created with humanity in mind. 
You see, but what they do not realize is that the Bible has been saying this all along. That is why God saved the best for last. So you see, this year in your God year, don't look at where you are starting from. Look at what God has said about you. At the end of the day, your tohu vabohu, your formless void, your place of darkness will become a home for you. God will create and make everything available to you. That is why, like I said, the most important thing for us this year is the word of God. In our sin, in our darkness, God sent forth the word. And when Christ came, the word made flesh came to redeem us from our darkness. So in 2024, as we journey through the year, I want you to remember the God that we are, we are talking about. We are not talking about the God that the world feeds us in movies. We are not talking about the God that people are trying to, to, to bring into our minds. That God is this way. If God was good, he would have done this. No. We serve the God who is. We serve the God who creates. And we serve the God who speaks. That is our God. This is our God. And because he is, and there will never be a time where he will not be, we can trust him. Because he's our maker, we worship him. Because he's our maker, we go to him for our purpose. And because he speaks, we can know him. In 2024, purpose to know God. He has spoken. We will know God. That is why... Our Wednesday meetings have dedicated our Wednesday meetings on how to learn and interpret the scriptures. Because we must learn to hear God and know his word. And that is when our life will move from darkness and God will look at you and say, and God looked at all the things that he has made and said it was very good. Your life will be good in 2024. Oh, you didn't hear me. I said your life will be good in 2024. Let's just surrender to God. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's just rise to our feet. Just want us to say a word of prayer. The first prayer is just to thank God. It's a simple prayer. We are just thanking God for being who he is. That he is our God. That he is our God. The Bible says, not unto us. Oh, not unto us. But unto thee. Be all the praise, the glory. Kadiba hazadabakos kepes. Yekevedi valababas. Yakadi falibraba yadabahasata. Yekedebedi faloshkapa. Libraba labadiatas.